But it's so good to have you here with us this morning. Uh, Thinking back five years ago, when this church began, we spent our first four Sundays working through some of the most foundational truths in the New Testament. We talked about the gospel, the church, and the mission of the church. And we did that back then to lay down what we hoped would become the foundation or what would always be foundational here at RBC. And now, five years in, I've decided to return to those foundational truths again to remind us of who we are, where we've been, and to reaffirm our commitment to the same core beliefs. So last week, we talked about what is of first importance. We talked about the gospel. Now, though it is true that all of the Bible is important, not everything in the Bible is of first importance. The gospel, however, is of first importance because it is the gospel that creates a church and that defines a church from something else, and it's the gospel that actually sustains a church. And so we focused last week especially on a basic question, what exactly is the gospel? We looked last week at the simplest and most direct answer to that question in the Bible. I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. So you could go there, or you could just listen to what Paul said there. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. Paul said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that, do you remember? Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve, and then to many more. The church as a whole will rise or fall based on its faithfulness to that message, to this good news that the God who made us has come to the rescue of sinners like us, through the promised king, Jesus Christ the righteous, who laid down his life for our sins on the cross and who was raised from the dead on the third day as Lord and Savior. The gospel message hasn't changed in the last five years. It never will. But, but we could if we are not careful, if we get distracted, or if we start thinking that perhaps something else is of first importance. There's always a danger for every church of drifting from the gospel, just like there's a danger of every individual Christian of drifting from the gospel. Paul knew that. That's why he wrote that text in 1 Corinthians. He wrote it, he said, as a reminder of what he had first preached that was of first importance. And that's why it's so important for us to make sure that the gospel remains at the center of the church, of the worship, of our gatherings, of our own hearts, of our own homes. So last week was all about the gospel. <clears throat> Simple question, what is the gospel? This, this week and the next week, uh, or the next sermon on this, is, is really about another very basic question. And the question is, what is the church? Now, what do you think? What would you give as an answer to that? <clears throat> what is the church? What would be your 
most concise, clearest answer to that question. I'll start by pointing out a few answers that I came across uh, this week. So I started, I started with Google. And so I asked Google, what is the church? Okay, this was the very first answer that came up. I think it's from a dictionary. Okay? So the church is a building used for public worship. Okay? I understand what that is saying. Uh, I will say up front, I'm not a big fan of that answer, and I'll talk some more about that later, but I understand, okay? So I'll move to some more reputable uh, sources here. Okay, so here's from the New City Catechism for Kids, and I, and I point this out because this is something we often use in our kids' classes, <clears throat> have used in our kids' classes here at RBC. This is a little book of question and answers about the Christian faith, and it's actually question 48 in that book. Uh, it says, what is the church? And the answer is, the church is a community elected or chosen for eternal life and united by faith who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. I think that'd be good for kids to learn, right? For all of us to probably learn. That's, that's a pretty good answer, okay? Now, I like that answer for a few reasons. There's two of them that I'll mention. First, in that answer, you notice the church is not defined as a building. Okay? Instead, the church is made up of people. And then second, the church is a community of people who are united by their faith and by their hope. Okay? So the church isn't a bunch of disconnected individuals. It's a community who share the same faith and the same destiny. Okay, now for another source, this will be the last one. <clears throat> this will be a little bit longer. This is from the RBC Doctrinal Statement. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to share just a couple parts of this. Uh, by the way, this is the full statement is available uh, on our website. And uh, many of you have, have seen it and read through it. We asked our members to read through it. So here's a couple lines from it, okay? We believe that the church is comprised or made up of all genuine followers of Jesus who have personally placed their trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. And it continues. The church is unified not by ethnicity, sex, economic, rank, or social status, but by its shared confession of Jesus as Lord and by virtue of sharing in the same Holy Spirit. So what unites the church is not what unites people in society. The church is united by our shared confession that Jesus is Lord. And it's united by the fact that God gives all of his people the same gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here's a little more from that statement. We believe that this one universal church is manifested in local churches over which Christ is the only head. So the church as a whole is made up of all people from all ages in all places who truly trust and follow Jesus. We all belong to the one universal church. But that one church is fleshed out in specific 
local churches in time and space over which Christ is the only head. And then there's this one last line that we'll look at. A local church is a spiritual family consisting of believers in Christ who covenant together as one body under the lordship of Christ to do his will. And there's a lot that could be said about that, but just notice how the church is pictured as a spiritual family and as one body, like what we saw in that scripture reading. Okay, and we're going to come back to these kind of pictures in this discussion. Okay? So that's just a quick, a quick look at a few possible answers to the question, what is the church? Okay, but but it, whatever your answer might be, or whatever you might find, what's most important is we always come back to the Bible and let the Bible shape or reshape, if necessary, how we think about the church. So what does the Bible say the church is? And here's where we have to be honest, that there is not just one verse that you can look at that will answer that. Or I would say even one chapter, or maybe even just one book that you could look at that would give a full answer to that question. So the answer to this question is woven throughout many verses, many chapters, many books in the New Testament, especially the books written by Paul. But one of the things I've discovered through reading Paul's letters a lot is that Paul loves to use pictures or illustrations to help us understand what the church is. In other words, you won't see Paul giving long definitions of the church. Instead, you'll see Paul giving quick illustrations of what the church is. Or think of it this way. If you ask Paul, Paul, what, what is the church? He probably would not pull out a doctrinal statement. He would probably say something like this. That's a good question. You know, the church is a flock with shepherds. Or he might say, you know, the church is the family of God. Or the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Or, you know, the church is the bride of Jesus. So instead of giving definitions of the church, Paul typically opts to paint pictures of the church. And so for this sermon and the next, I want us to look at a couple of those pictures more closely to try to get it more clear in our minds what the church really is. And for the most part, we're just going to focus on one of Paul's letters, the letter to the Ephesians, which I think is the one where he spends most time talking about the church of all of his letters. So you can turn to the letter to the Ephesians. And if you've never read Ephesians before, you're missing out. This is a great letter. It opens with awesome stuff, like right away. Opens with this song, like a hymn, early hymn, to God, praising Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for planning to save us, for Jesus coming to save us, and then for actually saving us as the Spirit opens our eyes to Jesus. But what I want to focus on is on one picture of the church that runs throughout the letter. In fact, it's in almost every chapter of Ephesians. So let's start by finding the picture, and then we'll look at how Paul uses it in Ephesians. So the first time the picture shows up 
is in the very first place where Paul uses the word church. So this is like his first thing that he says about the church. It's at the end of chapter 1. Look at verse 22. Paul says, and he, this is God, God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So if you ask Paul, what is the church? This is one of his favorite answers. The church is Jesus's body. And did you notice what Jesus's relationship is to the body? Paul spells it out. Jesus is the head of the body. He's the head. The church is the body. So Paul's not using the word head there. Maybe just like, you know, so-and-so is the head of this team or something like this. Like he, the head image is part of the, the whole picture. Jesus is the head. The church is his body. Now, what does that mean? Now, at minimum, we say that means Jesus is the leader of the church, like the one who gives it direction. Paul emphasizes there's only one head of the church. It's not, it's not me, you know, or Phil or any pastor. Jesus is the only head of the church. Without him, we are nothing. Like without the head, you know, you're like dead, okay? Like that's pretty much what happens. So, but, let's, but let's not stop here. Okay? I want to look at a couple of the places. We won't look at everyone today in Ephesians, but a couple of the places where Paul uses the picture. Like I said, it's in almost every chapter, I think five out of six in Ephesians. We'll look at Ephesians chapter four. And we'll start in verse one to get a little context. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope, and he goes on this way. But you can tell how concerned Paul is that we all care for each other gently, (coughs) patiently, that we put up with each other when we're having hard times with each other. We do everything we can to preserve the unity that we have through the spirit. And then Paul starts to talk about all the things we have in common. And that's where you'll see there's one of these, one of these, one of these, one of these. And the first thing that he says is, there's only one body. We all belong to the same body. We all belong to each other. We're all connected. The church is one body. And then Paul keeps coming back to that picture in chapter 4. So look down at verse 11. Paul says in verse 11, and he, which is Christ here, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God 
to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then we'll look at just one other text. Look down at verse 15, just a couple of verses later. He just keeps going. It says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, you see, I mean, Paul loves this picture. We're only going to look at it, some of the text today where he talks about it. But we just, Brant just read a really long text where Paul goes into great detail about that picture, you know, to the point where, you know, you have like ears complaining and feet talking, things like this. You know, Paul loves this picture. The church is the body of Christ. And to add to that, the church is one body with only one head. Yet at the same time, the church, though one body, has many body parts. Many parts, right? The church is a body where every part of the body matters. Where every part of that one body is vital to the health of the other parts. And this is where you can start to see, as you look at the picture, how different the picture Paul's painting is of what people today typically think about when they think about the church or when you ask Google what the church is. For Paul, the church is not a physical building. The church will, of course, meet in some physical space or facility, but the church is not that physical thing. If you start to think that it is too much, like you start to think too much that the church is a physical space or facility, that easily leads you to start thinking you can go to church on Sunday morning and leave the church behind on Sunday afternoon. But that's simply not the way Paul thought about the church. We are the church all week long. Also, for Paul, the church is not a club. It's not like your local fitness center. For example, where it doesn't matter if you show up or not, as long as you pay your dues. And where you don't know or even care to know most of the members of the club. I mean, think about this, for example. In your club, if you're into gym stuff, I go to LA Fitness. In your, in your club, is it really that big of a deal if you lose a member? But then think of it this way. In your body, would there be even one member, part of your body that you could lose without like significant trauma or pain or grief. This is more of the picture Paul paints. Now, that's not everything Paul has to say about the church in Ephesians, and it's not even everything he has to say about the body picture in Ephesians, but it's enough to give us a good idea of what Paul might say to the question, what is the church? He might say, you know, the church is Christ's body. But at this point, I want to, want to go to a little bit different question, a follow-up question. That is, who belongs to the body of Christ? 
or who makes up the body of Christ. For example, is every person in the world part of the body of Christ? Okay, the answer to that in the New Testament is clearly no. Not every person is part of the body of Christ. Or what do you think about this question? Is every person who goes to church part of the body of Christ? In other words, does, does going to a church gathering automatically mean you belong to the body of Christ? What do you think about that? The answer to that as well is also no. Not every person who goes to church is part of the body of Christ, the way Paul's talking. <clears throat> That's not to say it isn't good to go to church. Go to church. It's a good thing. But being around the body of Christ does not automatically make you part of the body of Christ. So let's look back to Ephesians to try to get an answer to the question, who makes up the body of Christ? And look back at Ephesians 4 again and start in verse 4 again. Okay, Ephesians 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Back to our question, who makes up the body of Christ? The body of Christ is made up of people who share those things in common. Okay. They are the people who have the same Holy Spirit living in them, who confess their allegiance to the very same Lord, Jesus, and who trust the same gospel that Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day. And the body of Christ is made up of those who share the same hope, the hope of eternal life with Jesus in the new creation. But I don't want to just stop in that text. Okay, I think Ephesians even says something more than this. And here's where I would add to this, that the body of Christ is made up of people who all share the very same story. Now, you might ask, which story? Because aren't all our stories different? How can I say we all share the same story? Okay, let's look together at Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verse 1. Okay, this is the story that every person in the body of Christ has in common. Ephesians 2 verse 1. <clears throat> and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Though our individual stories may run a thousand directions, we all share this story in common. 
we were all at one time dead in our sins. But we share more than that. Because all human beings actually share in that part of the story. Whether they know it or not. But those in the body of Christ share in more than that. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, because we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Who makes up the body of Christ? The body of Christ is made up of people who used to be destined for judgment, but whom God has rescued through Jesus. It's made up of people who have been brought from death to life. It's made up of people who saw their own sinfulness and felt their own hopelessness but who saw the love of God in the face of Jesus. It's made up of those who have been saved from their sins by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And though our individual stories may run a thousand directions, at the end of the day, we all share the same story. We all share the story of being saved by grace. If you don't share that story, you're not a part of the body of Christ yet. It's only the people who share that story who belong to the body. And by the way, that means that the door is also wide open for you today because you can qualify for that. (laughs) You could become part of the body of Christ because it's not a closed door. It's still wide open. If you would acknowledge your sins to God, and turn from them in faith to Christ, you can enter in because the door is open. Salvation in this text is pictured as a free gift bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus for you, and you can have it if you want it, but you have to take it by faith. And as, we, as we bring this to a close, I want to I draw this out in two different ways, two different applications related to the church being the body of Christ. One is, a, I think, a great challenge, and the other is a great comfort. Okay? I don't have time to develop either of these fully, but Ephesians does develop both of these. Okay. The first thing, I want to consider the challenge or the high calling of being part of the body of Christ. Okay. Why is it such a high calling to be part of Christ's body or to be Christ's body? want to highlight just one reason. As Jesus's body, the church is what puts Jesus on display in the world today. Just think about that. As Jesus's body, 
the church is the one thing that puts Jesus on display for all the world to see. In other words, Jesus is seated in heaven today. He is not here like he once was or like he will be again one day. I'm not saying he's not with us, but he is not here like he once was or like he will be one day. As Peter says, we do not now see him. Yet, the church is here. And the church is Jesus' body. So one thing this means is that the church is the visible display of Jesus in this age. So think of it this way. If someone asks, what is Jesus like? Where should you be able to point? Say, just look at his body. It's right there for you to see what Jesus is like. That is an incredibly high and holy calling. And I think that's what's behind the challenge we read earlier where Paul says, I urge you, therefore, to walk worthy of the calling. And honestly, when I think of this, I don't know what you think. When I think of this, I want to say something like, oh, Lord, help us. Because I know it's only by God's grace and the power of God's spirit that we won't make a mess out of everything. Like, why did you do that? Might be what we want to ask the Lord. But then I also see more clearly why Paul calls the church to what he does, which is to be really humble toward each other and to be gentle with each other and to forgive each other as God's forgiven us and to be very eager to preserve our unity and to make sure we speak the truth in love to each other because we're going to need to hear it. That's the only way we'll ever grow up into our head into Christ. That's the only path to representing Christ well together to the watching world. That is the high calling. I think a really big challenge for us. But then I want to close today with something that I think is a deep comfort of being part of the body of Christ. On the one hand, say what's comforting about being part of the body? I'd say on the one hand, there's comfort in simply knowing you belong to something bigger than yourself. I mean, at the level of our culture, like just knowing you really belong to something bigger than you is a comfort. But then you could add to that if you know anything about the church or about what Paul says. There's the comfort in knowing that other parts of the body care about you, like actually want to know you and care about you. Like it's not a one-way commitment in the body of Christ in any of the texts that Paul talks about the picture. Now, all of that's pretty comforting to me, and I hope it is to you, but that's not the deepest comfort of being part of the body of Christ. I think the deepest comfort is this, is that Christ loves his body. He cherishes his body. He nourishes, feeds his body.
And to see this, we'll just look at a few final verses in Ephesians chapter 5. They're familiar, I think, because they're in the context of marriage discussions. And it's all great to talk about marriage, but I, I, wanna, I want you to focus on the Christ part in, the, in these verses, okay? Ephesians chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave up his life for her. Then look down to verse 28. In the same, this is Ephesians 5, 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, you can say a lot there about marriage, but what I want to say today is if you're truly part of the body of Christ, that means you are loved. Whether you are single or divorced, in a good place in your marriage or in a tough spot, if you're in the body of Christ, it means you already have the greater thing. You already have what even the best marriage is only a picture of. Jesus loves you unfailingly. He came for us. He came after us. He laid down his life for us to win us. But he didn't stop there. It's not just about what he did in the past when you read that text. He never stops pursuing. He cherishes us. He feeds us. He deeply cares about you. Why? Paul's answer, because we are members of his body. So no matter what sorrows or wounds you may have come here carrying, may you find comfort in the deep, deep love of Jesus. If you are part of the body of Christ, you belong to him now and forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these pictures in the New Testament that help us to understand who we are, what you've done, what you think about us, what our role is. And in this case, I thank you how this helps us to understand, Lord Jesus, how much you love us, how you still care about us today, how we are never far from your mind. I pray that you would both challenge us to walk worthy of the calling and that you would comfort us with the truth that we belong to you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.